So sometimes I watch, uh, we watch, watch shows as a family at night, and um, so over the past few years, I've settled into a habit. I, I suspect that some of y'all have settled into a similar habit, but I, I stay awake during the first episode, but uh, then we watch a second episode, and I usually fall asleep pretty soon into it. So if you ask me about the show, I can only generally tell you what's going on, and I can only generally give you an opinion about half the episodes, uh, but I'm okay with that. I, I, I like that pre-bed sleep, but I prefer that. But what I'm fine with about TV, I'm not fine with about things that matter. And I get disturbed and distressed about how I can fail to stay awake and stay active or stay alert and stay attentive when I really need to be. I can settle into a state of unpreparedness or just passivity, both in my relationship with the Lord and in the callings God's entrusted to me. And, and it's a dangerous place. I'm poised to fall deeper into sin, to grow cold toward God and to miss opportunities he's given me. It makes me think of this quote in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, which is riveted on my imagination, but you know, in Screwtape Letters, you have this high-ranking demon named uh, Screwtape, and he writes his underling, Wormwood, and he says this in one of the chapters. He advises him, you know, the best way to get at those humans, and he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You have this slow, gentle drift that's leading you down to hell. So Jesus exhorts us to stay awake and stay alert. And this command is full of grace to you today. And I think of it in relation to sports that, you know, you get out on the court or you get on the field and maybe you're not paying attention as you should. You're not reacting or being ready to react. And the coach yells at you, remember this, like, get your head in the game. It's similar to that in the more ultimate matters of life. So Jesus is especially talking about his second coming in our text today. And so let's read it. It's Luke 12, 35. Luke 12, 35. Jesus continues this sermon. He's preaching and he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, 
Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And the grass withers and the flowers fade and this good word it endures even unto today. Thanks be to God. And so again, Jesus is mainly talking about his second coming here. And just the fact that he's telling us about his second coming is full of grace. He is coming again. This fallen world is not going to exist as it is forever. There is a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus comes to bring it in. And so Jesus is urging us to stay awake and stay active with a view to his coming to bring in his kingdom. We're to live with this anticipation and expectancy. We're to walk with God and serve the Lord with this sense that the veil between this world and the next is thin. And that at any moment, Jesus could return in glory, wind up history, and call us to account. And that forms a significant part of our motivations. And so the question for us this morning, as I've been asking myself this question during the week, is do I have something of this anticipation? Something of this expectancy Does it form part of the motivation for which I live, what I prioritize, and what I do, or why I do it? And so really just two points today. The first is be ready, and the second is be reliable. Or you could say stay awake and stay active. Let's go, be ready, verses 35 to 40. And so if you recall, Jesus has been preaching a fairly long sermon now, the way Luke has recorded it. And he's going now from warning us of the temporal and uncertain and relatively insignificant nature of money and possessions. 
And yet at the same time, that struggle we have with greed and with anxiety over them. And so Jesus, in the face of that, has given us a ton of encouragements. And then he's turned to talk about eternal things, his kingdom. And the eternal, certain, and supremely significant nature of his kingdom. And so now he speaks particularly, if the kingdom is that important, it is utterly sure and certain and significant that the king of the kingdom himself is going to return again and you need to live your lives in light of that now. And so Jesus in this first part, the be ready part, gives us three word pictures for our readiness. He gives us a blessing and he gives us a warning. So the three word pictures first. The first one is stay dressed for action. It's more literally to gird or bind up the loins, that is your waist, your hips, as with a belt or a girdle. Like cinch that belt, strap the belt on. And people back then would wear these long flowing robes when they're walking around the house or relaxing or at leisure. But if they needed to work or to travel, they'd put a be- fasten a belt around their waist. It meant they were ready. Or even more, if they had strenuous labor to do or if they were going to war, they would do even more. They'd gather their robes and bring the front part of the robes through their legs around the back, wind it up and tie it or put it in a belt to where it made some kind of shorts or short pants. And they could, they could move and they could run and they could work. And that would be girding up the loins. And y'all know how that phrase is real important in scripture. First Peter 1.13, we studied it in Sunday school. And Peter uses that, which I think is real appropriate since Peter figures so importantly in this text. But that text says, he says, gird up the loins of your minds. Now that's a visual, isn't it? That our minds get sluggish and ambiguous and we just don't think about things well. Gird up the loins of your minds. Well, the second word picture is uh, keep, keep your lamps burning. Keep your lamps burning. And so the image there is of a lamp that's all prepared and it's in use. The wick is trimmed. The reservoir of oil is full. You've lit it and it's shedding its light throughout the house. And the idea is that you're moving around the house with your lamp. And so it's the idea of a, of a servant being awake and watchful, even during the late night hours. It's, it's more than just we'll keep the light on for you. It's I'm holding the lamp and I'm watching for your return. And we know how important lamp imagery is in scripture and oil, you know, the son of God and the Holy Spirit. Well, the third word picture comes, it combines these first two into a little parable. And so in this little parable, you have the master of the house goes off to a feast, a wedding feast, maybe a last, you know, feast back then, they knew how to give a feast. It lasts several days. And so he returns very late after a few days of feasting. And the men of the house, meaning his servants, they're not drowsy and they're not lazy and they're not self-indulgent. They are so on point, on call, on target that they 
keep their loins girt and their lamps burning and they're immediately ready for him when he knocks on the door and returns to the house ready for whatever he needs them to do. And these three word pictures really are ways to describe living faith. You know, faith is an act. You know, we talk about, Luther talked about a passivity to faith that we receive, which is a cherished truth. At the same time, the same faith that passively receives the work of Jesus is active, and we see it here. It's a watchful, alert, attentive faith to Jesus. Well, just think of Revelation 3.20, you know. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. It's built on this teaching of Jesus here. Well, for such a servant, Jesus pronounces a blessing. And so he says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. They're blessed, meaning happy or fortunate. So how blessed are these servants here? And this is what, a, a favorite verse of mine. They're so blessed that when the master of the house returns and finds them waiting on him in faith, Jesus says, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. So the master responds to the watchfulness of his servants in an unheard of, unprecedented way. Masters did not do that. He turns the roles upside down. He has them recline at table, Notice the reclining at ordinary meals, you sat at feasts, you reclined. Banquets, you reclined. So the masters come from a feast. They wait for them, him, and then he prepares them a feast. He girds himself for action, and he comes to serve them. It's just beautiful. Like, what master acts like that? What what Lord of your life could you select who would treat you like that? And Jesus is speaking of himself, his second coming, and it's such a gospel motivation. We obey Jesus because there's, there's not a master who's better than him. There's not a Lord superior to him. There's no one like him. You don't get the servant, the idea that the servants attend him because they're, they're terrified or cringing at his return or afraid of his repercussions. You, you get a sense that they're attentive to him because they're devoted to him. And who wouldn't be seeing what his heart is like for them? And it's that way with us. We serve him because he's especially served us. We love him because he's especially loved us. He served us to the uttermost by redeeming us from our sins. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's done that at the cross for us. But amazingly, it doesn't stop there in glory 
from his throne, having accomplished the work, he gathers his people around his table. In fact, he's looking forward to that, preparing a wedding feast for us, and not just inviting us there as guests, but he calls us his cherished bride, the guest of honor. Like he took our sins from us to wash us clean in order that he might have us at his table in glory. What better motivation is that? And it's important to give blessed its full meaning. It's not just happy and fortunate. Really in scripture, it's the privileged recipient of divine favor. The stress is on what God thinks of us. It's divine approval. It's a deep inner joy that comes from experiencing God's salvation. It speaks of a blessing results to us through a living faith in Christ. We don't hustle for it. It's granted through this kind of faith. And so he repeats the benediction again. He says, he may delay in coming. The master may not arrive till the second or third watch of the night. The Romans divided the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four watches, three hours apiece. So the second and third watches of the night are somewhere between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. You get the idea, he's coming to the middle of the night. But those servants stay awake for him and those that do this kind of faith that's devoted to Jesus, they are blessed by him. But then Jesus gives, switches the figure. And it's really interesting what he does here. And it's not the only time as we've read this morning that he does this or scripture does this. Now he pictures the master of the house who, who needs to stay vigilant at all hours in order to protect his home from a thief. The idea is a thief doesn't send a calling card saying exactly what time he's going to arrive. So if the master of the house is gonna protect his home, he has to stay vigilant constantly. And so this is a warning to us. The warning is the thief is gonna come and and rob his belongings if he doesn't stay alert. That robbing is really dig through the mud walls of your house and take what belongs to you if you're not on guard. And so to keep from suffering loss, the master must stay on watch. And so Jesus shocks us here because in the parable, the thief is the son of man. Like he calls himself, in a sense, like a thief. It's a description of him. So why is Jesus going to refer to himself in that way in the New Testament in several instances? Well, the, the point is that a thief causes loss to the master of the house if he's not aware and attentive of his constant threat. And so even so, Jesus will bring ultimate loss to us if we are not aware and attentive to his arrival. The fact that he would come and we would not be ready would be an ultimate loss. And in that sense, it's similar to what a thief would do. It's an urgent summons to us to be ready, to never put things off in relationship with the Lord Jesus, never. And it's grace that he would warn us of that. Well, be reliable, verse 41 through 48. 
second point. So from the need to be ready, Jesus now turns to the need to be reliable or to be faithful, wise to the responsibilities God's entrusted us with. And so really here we think of all the callings God's given you. God's given all of you a ton of callings. You think of all the hats you wear. You think of being a son and a daughter, a parent, a mother, father. Church member, think of your jobs. They're important to God, the way God uses you in a unique way in his world to bless other people. It's not superficial or ancillary in God's way of viewing you. Think of being a citizen, a member of our community, most importantly, a Christian. So Peter, as he tends to do, right here, he voices a question. So we're always thankful for Peter. He voices a question here. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And so why does Peter ask this question? So what's got him so curious or so confused here? Well, Jesus had been mainly speaking with his disciples and especially the 12, even though the crowd is overhearing. And he's told them to be ready for his return. And if they are, they'll be incredibly blessed. All that's good. But he's also warned them that some won't be ready. And so they'll suffer dreadful loss. And so Peter's sitting there listening to that. And he gets disturbed by it. And so he asked Jesus, you mean some of us disciples, maybe even among the 12, will end up being unprepared and suffer loss? I mean, sure you're not talking about your disciples, but you're now shifted and talking about the crowds, right? Right? And yet as Jesus does, he doesn't respond directly to Peter's question. He instead responds to his question with another question, actually a parable, because he's always making us think. He makes us deal with our hearts. And he does the same for you too today, me today. He says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? By this, Jesus directs Peter's thoughts to those who consider themselves disciples, followers of Jesus, and even more, those who are entrusted with leadership or stewardship in Jesus' household, the church. And so this entails pastors. I mean, he's talking to me, talking to Jeremy. He's talking to the elders of the church. He's talking about the deacons of the church. He's talking about other forms of leadership. He's talking about all our teachers, all our women's ministry leaders, all our youth leaders, children. But even further, it's all believers. He's assigned responsibility to each of us to care for certain people. So Jesus speaks of a manager, a steward, or a servant that he's given authority to care for others. And this servant can either prove himself faithful or prove himself unfaithful. And if he proves himself unfaithful, there are three ways he can do so. So it's, it's, it's designed to get us to engage it. So first, Jesus speaks of a faithful steward. And this is what he wants Peter and us to be. He goes, Peter, 
in that question, I want you to focus on just being faithful. You don't have to you know, take over the world, just be faithful. So the steward was to look out for the welfare, the good of the other servants. He was especially called to feed them. And so it's such a great image that faithfulness looked like feeding those entrusted to his care. And that's exactly what Jesus told Peter to do after his resurrection, when he reinstates him, he just goes, feed my sheep. So the fruit of real faith is that we feed with the word those we have responsibility over. And Jesus says, such a servant, such a steward will be blessed, will be the privileged recipient of divine favor. If when his master returns, he finds him just doing what he's called to do, just being faithful, carrying out the task. It's kind of like when we were in Peru, my, the guy we worked with had this old rickety truck and we called it the caballito, the little horsey. And he would take this rickety truck in terrible roads all over the place. And I'd always kind of laugh at it with him and say, you know, it's going to make it this time. And his, his phrase was, que muera in su ley, meaning literally, might it die in its law, which really meant, might it die doing what it loves to do. And Jesus just calls us to stick with the tasks he's entrusted to us. And so... How will the master's blessing over him be manifest? He says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now that's a real interesting statement. The master put the steward temporarily in charge during his absence, but now that he just proves himself faithful to stay awake doing what he's supposed to do, the master promotes him to be permanently in charge of his belongings. And so do you see a biblical truth here that the reward for safe, faithful service, what blessedness looks like, is more service and more responsibility and glory. The, the, the honor and privilege given to serve here is just increased in glory. We should think of heaven as a place where God assigns us unique tasks perfectly crafted for us in which we can serve him and others with great pleasure, delight, and satisfaction. All right, second, that's the faithful servant. Now, the, the unfaithful servant, second, Jesus speaks of an unfaithful steward. And so the warning to Peter and us is that one can claim to be in the master's household, even a steward within it, but sadly prove himself to be without living faith. It's another way of speaking about the parable of the sower, um, various superficial forms of faith, but here it's focused on real faith leads us to serve God and others. So one type of unfaithfulness is this, this blatant, outrageous wickedness, let's say. And so this first type, the steward reasons with himself, and he says, well, the master is delayed in coming. So he kind of cracks his knuckles. And this is how he responds to that delay in the master's return. He does what he really wants to do. He, he beats the male and female servants, he eats and drinks, and he gets drunk. He uses the authority and his privilege to abuse those in his care, to be a tyrant, to kind of throw his weight around. 
And then he indulges and gratifies his cravings and appetites. It's the exact opposite of the master. He, the master so cares for his servants that he feeds them, you know, watches over them and prepares a banquet for them. This guy is the exact opposite of his master. He's about what he can get and how he can indulge himself. So the master returns unexpectedly to this unfaithful servant's horror and he cuts him in pieces and puts him with the unfaithful. Terrible image of judgment. And so cut in pieces is a strong word meaning dismemberment of a condemned person. And so it's the most graphic way to express utter rejection. To put him in the unfaithful really means to put him with unbelievers. He just showed himself he wasn't a believer. Like he just wasn't a believer. His high calling doesn't protect him from that judgment because that's just not who he is. Judgment day will reveal him for who he is and his master will curse him. And that's a warning. And so another type of unfaithful steward this, this type is not blatantly wicked, he's just irresponsible and lazy. So he's unfaithful to his charge, but his rebellion is not as severe as the first type. He, he knows his master's will, that he care for the other servants and feed them, but he just doesn't get ready and act on it, and he's passive and apathetic. So we, we learn here that it's not enough not to do wrong, a servant is also to do right. Yet he doesn't do what he knows he should do. So when the master returns unexpectedly, it says he gives this servant a severe beating. And it's a harsh punishment too, but it's not as grave as the openly rebellious steward. And this one isn't described as being utterly condemned and put with the unbelievers. So it may mean that though severely punished, he retains a relationship with his master. It may be like Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 that at judgment day some will escape as through fire. Maybe that's it. Well, then there's a type three. And type three refers to an unfaithful steward that's, that's ignorant of his master's will. And so he doesn't know what his master wanted him to do. He isn't aware that he must care for and feed the servants. So somehow he missed it. He just wasn't paying attention and nevertheless, Jesus says ignorance never gets us off the hook. It never exonerates us. Romans 1.20 says that everybody knows the nature and character of God just by being an image bearer of God in his world. We're, we're never, we never have a good excuse. How much more those who confess to follow him. However, the steward's unfaithfulness earns him a light beating instead of a severe beating and it seems that as the second type also indicated that he retains a relationship with his master. And so Jesus summarizes the point of his parable. He looks at Peter and his disciples, he looks at us. It's a strong statement. He says, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. And so it's a crucial principle for us. I mean, there is no place in the world that has more privilege, light, opportunity. So a crucial privilege is the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility to respond to what is given to us. You know, Spider-Man understood this when 
It was said to him that with great strength comes great responsibility. So, so biblical. But in such a powerful way, Jesus looked at us and said, with greater privilege, you here today have great responsibility. The more knowledge and gifting you have, the more you're accountable to use them. The more light and opportunity you have, the more severely you'll be judged if you don't act on them. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Faith looks like being ready and being reliable. And then another related crucial insight is that there are degrees of glory in heaven and there are degrees of punishment in hell. A faithful steward gets more honor and authority in heaven and the unfaithful steward, according to the text, according to the extent of his unfaithfulness, gets punished. Jesus lays that out for us as part of our motivation. So he looks at us through Peter, through the disciples. He looks at us blessed with knowledge of the gospel, with a lot of light, a lot of gifting, and a lot of opportunity. He looks at us and says, look, I've entrusted it to you. Look to how you put it to use for my kingdom. For the nurture of your fellow servants, for the sake of the lost. And he looks at us in, in, underneath all of this and says, look, and do so because the true servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, served you to the uttermost, down to the depths, laying his life down to take the punishment for your sin at the cross. Like he's undone the judgment. And do so also because this same Lord Jesus that went down to the depths to serve you is gonna lift you up to the heights around his banqueting table and gather you with him as his bride and fellowship with you and eat with you and serve you at his second coming. And is there anyone that we'd want to serve more than such a redeemer? And may it be so for us. Amen. Let's stand.